Hey, good morning, y'all. How are we doing today? Y'all feeling all right out there? Ready for Christmas? Shopping's done? Everything's in order? How many of you are going out of town for Christmas? How many of you will head out of town this week? That's what I figured. A um, huge number of people in Houston end up going out of town. Just Houston's one of those cities. It's, uh, maybe it's unique in this way. It's, most of the people that are here are not from here. And so you go other places for Christmas. That's when we had our Traveler's Christmas Eve service on Thursday. We've already celebrated Christmas Eve. We did it on the 16th. That's how punctual we are at the story. Uh, no, it's a, it was a great celebration Thursday night, and we'll have five more of them this Friday, as you just heard. One, two, three, four, and 5 p.m. Um, one, three, and five here, two, and four at Timber Grove. I'd love to see y'all at one of those services. We'll talk about Mary uh, on, on Christmas Eve. I can't wait uh, to dig into that story with all of you. Uh, this is a special day for us as a community in this campus especially. Believe it or not, this is the last Sunday that we'll gather in this space um, after seven, almost seven, wonderful years since we began in February, late February of 2015 is when the story started. And so it's been almost seven years here at St. Luke's. We've, we've loved every minute of it. And we're uh, looking ahead to this new future now. We're looking at January 1 as kind of a new church start. Like we will technically be a new church January 1 and in a new place. As you've seen us announce probably this uh, new building that we've got, uh, at least for the next few years, it's a lease, not a purchase. People were like, how did we afford that? We, we leased it and really... I would say we lucked into it, but I just don't believe in luck anymore. I just think God had this for us, and, and um, it is such a perfect situation. It's a little bit weird and ironic, like how similar to this, to the buildings on this campus that our new campus looks like. It's not as nice or, or whatever, but, but like the red brick, the traditional church building, like we, we're kind of going to be in a, in a similar place, but we're going to be in the in the big church. Like, you know, it's, it's a weird thing God has done. Be real careful when you go to the museum district to find us there January 23rd because there's another church that looks just like ours but a lot bigger and nicer. It's called First Presbyterian. It's right in front of us. I don't want you to end up there. Although if you do, they'll tell you it was predestined. Anyway, so. Anyway, that's fine. We all get along. Um, so there are new neighbors. So uh, starting 23rd of January, we'll be in the museum district, this campus. Timber grows. Nothing's changing over there. Our worship times aren't changing. But between now and January 23rd, just heads up, don't expect to find a story meeting on this campus uh, on Sunday mornings. Next Sunday, we'll all be together at, uh, for one service at Timber Grove at 9.45, it's gonna be a great celebration the day after Christmas, the 26th. And then for the first three Sundays of January, we're gonna be where? All right, y'all are scaring me. There's only three people that know this. And I've, I've announced it ad nauseum for a month. We're gonna be where? All right, Timber Grove, 2nd, 9th, and 16th of January for two services, 9.45 and 11. It's gonna be a great celebration. It's kind of, it's gonna be, especially on the 2nd, it's gonna be a celebration of Timber Grove's first birthday. So we're so proud of Pastor Kale and what's going on over there. And, uh, and then we'll have our grand opening. Got a lot of other fun things planned over there, like a housewarming party and a, and uh, uh, like a serve day where you can help us clean up the campus and get it ready. So just check uh, thestory.church slash next, what is it? Next chapter, that's what it is. Thestory.church slash next chapter is where you can get all the information for all of these things coming up in the transition. Also, if uh, you're looking at making a year-end contribution to support the story during this time, a lot of people have had questions. Do we do it the same way we have before? Do we do it in this new way? 
you can, you can really do whatever you feel like doing. It's all going basically to the same place. If you want to be most helpful, most directly to the story's transition, you can visit thestory.church slash transition and make your year-end gift to the transition fund. And we would be so, so grateful. And thank you to all of you who've already done that. We love you so much. And, uh, and thank you for making this transition as smooth as it can be. Been spending a lot of time in the museum district getting that building ready. Every wall needed painting just about. Every carpet needed replacing because I'm pretty sure it was original to the building, which was built in 1939. So it was time. And, um, and so we've been sprucing the place up and doing some minor uh, plumbing things and stuff like that just to make it as hospitable a home as it can be. So we can't wait to get it opened up. All right, so um, that's a lot of information, especially if you're here for the first time. You're like, I just... Just finally decided to visit this church, and now you're telling me <laughs> this is it. We're leaving. So you can find us in the museum district, and we hope that you will, um, starting in, in January 23rd. So we're going to wrap up a, a Christmas series of conversations we've been having called Overflowing with Thankfulness today. And this is a, a phrase, that's a three-word phrase plucked from uh, Colossians, because this is also a series about this letter called Colossians that Paul wrote to the first Christians. And so whether you know it or not, whenever you read um, half of the New Testament, um, what you're reading is someone else's mail, which, uh, which is a federal offense. These, these were all like letters people wrote and you're, you're spying on them by reading. And that's what Colossians is. It's not a book. It's a letter. Paul wrote to some acquaintances of his or some uh, counterpart Christians of his that, that he had heard we're having a hard time understanding the gospel. And so um, a lot of the issues he addressed with them are still around today. And that's why we think it's such an important uh, book for us to learn, especially at uh, Christmas time, because the themes are pretty apropos of, of Christmas. And uh, every time I give one of these talks, I like to have in mind a question that everyday people are asking in everyday places, like coffee houses and classrooms and online, uh, Reddit boards, all, all, all the threads and things on, like you see people asking questions and I like to bring those questions into the church. We can talk about them. And one of the questions that I hear a lot is, why do Christians think their faith is superior or different or unique? What makes Christianity so unique or unique at all? Is it really unique at all. And shouldn't we be to a point now, this is kind of how the thinking goes, shouldn't we be to a point now as sophisticated people living in 2021, almost 2022, that we stop saying one religion is better than all the others? And shouldn't we just accept that all religions are equal? They're equally true or equally untrue. They're equally the opiate of the masses or they're, maybe they're just different paths leading to the same place. Shouldn't we get over this whole, you know, holy war thing of like, my religion's better than yours. And while I appreciate the sentiment behind that thinking, I want to caution us not to be so sensitive and sentimental about this, that, that we forsake truth. And in so doing, that we actually disrespect the various religions more than, than saying they're different would be. You see what I'm saying? If you say all religions are the same, you're basically discounting all the unique truths, truth claims being made by all the various religions. And so it's not really kind or fair to do that to any religion, um, Christianity or, or otherwise. There are obviously unique claims made by every world religion. Otherwise, we would just all have one world religion, and there would be no distinctions. 
But clearly there are distinctions in terms of what we say is true. And Christianity has a few of them. And throughout this series, we've been going through some of those. And the first one um, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and that's just simply that Jesus was a man, an actual historical figure. Jesus of Nazareth really walked the earth, and he's God. And so this is unique to Christianity, the idea that the central human figure of our faith is actually our God. And uh, no other religion that I could find or think of has ever made such a claim that the one at the center of our religion is, is not only God, but became a man in every way. Okay, so, so this, is, this is interesting and unique to Christianity. This is what we celebrate on, on Friday and Saturday this week as Christmas rolls around. What are we celebrating? Are we celebrating just Santa? Are we celebrating just family and parties and eggnog? Does anyone really like eggnog? Any eggnog? Okay, this guy. So uh, you're unique. You see, we're, we're talking about how we're different, and that's... <laughs> so... I'm sure it's delightful. I've actually never had eggnog. So I don't even know what I'm talking about. All right, so um, we can hang out and have some eggnog. Okay, so the, what was I saying? <laughs> so the, the, the Christian claim at Christmas isn't some fairy tale fiction. Now, one thing I talked about two weeks ago, and I, this is very purposeful, we have added fairy tale and fictional elements to the actual biblical narrative. So there's a historical narrative that's pretty much supported by uh, secular historians and and, um, Bible scholars, the idea that Jesus was really born to a real mother named Mary, most likely, I'm just speaking from a secular perspective, and that he really walked the earth. Jesus of Nazareth, real guy. Well, so so we we take that at Christmas and we say, well, then he, he must have really been born, and these are the details we know about his birth. Then we've done some other things with his narrative, birth narrative, that is not biblical. Things like the innkeeper. We talked about this two weeks ago. There's no innkeeper in the Bible. No vacancy. That guy. There's no, there's not a, he's, he's not in the Bible. We made, the, we made him up just to try to make the story more interesting or to fill it out somehow. But you'll hear churches talk about the innkeeper. And so there are like these kind of fantastical elements we've built in that sometimes give skeptics the impression the whole thing must be mythological. The whole thing must kind of be of that genre. And that's fine. People make up myths all the time. And this is a good myth to follow. Jesus seems like as good as any other myth. So that's great. No, 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 no. Don't be confused. Don't be misguided by by some of the fillers like... Uh, the innkeeper, or the fact that Jesus was born on December 25th. No one thinks he was really born on December 25th. The only reason we celebrate Christmas on December 25th is that long ago, December 25th was already a pagan holiday. The Christians already had the day off because the pagans told them they did. And then they were like, this seems like a good day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So (laughs) December 25th it is. And that's how we got Christmas on December 25th. But the idea that that's the same, it doesn't even matter. It's not in the Bible. Some of the songs that we sing have mythological elements. Away in a manger. Like, anybody like that song? And you, know, you confess up. They're like, no, he's going to embarrass me, like the eggnog guy. <laughs> it's fine to like the song. Just know there are mythological additions. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Come on. Have you ever met a newborn baby? It's like, who wrote this song? And clearly they had no children. It's a problem if you have a newborn 
who makes no crying. Like, that's a medical problem <laughs> that someone should look into. Jesus was a real newborn. He made some crying, okay? And sometimes I think Mary and Joseph must be up in heaven listening to us sing these songs like, uh, sleep in heavenly peace. And they're like, you have no idea how little peace there was in our home during that time. But y'all go ahead and, and think that, you know? There's songs like The Little Drummer Boy, who uh, uh, is summed up, I think, in this meme quite well, as you see here. Mary, exhausted, having just gotten Jesus to sleep, is approached by a young man who thinks to himself, what this girl needs is a drum solo. <laughs> okay, contrary to popular belief, there was no little drummer boy at the nativity scene, all right? But, but don't be confused or misled by some of the, the mythological elements that have been built around the actual story. Jesus was really born, and he really became one of us, and Christians believe, and this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique, that that baby, in him dwelled the fullness of God. This is a unique claim that no other religion can claim. Okay, and that's it's not to say superior or not, I'm not getting there yet, <laughs> but I do want to say it's unique. Now, the second thing that's um, unique about the Christian worldview as compared to other worldviews, religious and secular alike, really, is we believe um, that God has taken up residence, not in buildings or temples or on the mountaintops or just in the heavens, but this God has chosen to reside in the hearts and minds of believers. And this is unlike any other worldview that I know of. The idea that the fullness of God's presence, his very spirit, can dwell and live in the spirit of a person who believes in him and who welcomes him in and change that person's character from within. That's a, that's a wild assertion. But that's one of the truth claims that sets um, Christianity apart, um, even from what you'll find in two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Testament, where we still have this language of there being a house for God, a temple where God lives. Christians come along and Christians, Christians say, our God doesn't need a house. Not one built by human hands anyway. This God can, can live in our, in, our, in our hearts, in us. And, and that's what he's done through Christ. So Christ in us was what we talked about last week. Christ in you. The, the third thing that we're really going to camp out on today, that real distinctive that matters for today's conversation, is this idea of forgiveness having happened already. Universal, total, all-encompassing forgiveness of all sin in all times having already been forgiven by God. So um, the, the idea that in Christ, God has already forgiven all of our sins is unique to Christianity. So I want to read um, this passage now from Colossians. I'm going to talk about it a little bit after that. Before I read this passage, I just want to ask you one question. And this is a very practical question. As far as your life and your relationships, your happiness level and your family life, what difference would it make if you could figure out how to forgive and be forgiven. Like if you could crack the forgiveness code somehow and break through your family's generational, perhaps, tendency to hold grudges, 
and be petty and resentful and passive-aggressive and, and hold sin over each other's heads. If you could find a way to forgive freely and to be forgiven and know it, what difference would it make in your life? Ask yourself that question and hold on to it as we read this passage uh, from Colossians. So this is Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 8 is where I will begin. All right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, this is point one that we made earlier, he's summing it all up for us. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you, so Christ in you, in Christ, you, this is the second point that we made earlier. Um, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. And here's today's main idea. He, God, forgave us all our sins. Listen closely. He forgave, past tense, forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. All right? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made it a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, so let's talk about forgiveness today. Every religious worldview and secular worldview deals with the topic of forgiveness in remarkably similar ways except for Christianity, which takes a very different approach to the problems of sin and forgiveness. And what I mean by that is that throughout the course of human history, people have always looked to their systems of justice, be they religious or secular, as the means by which to gain justice, by, by, by which to uh, seek uh, restitution, for a wrong. And if you're thinking about a secular government, for instance, we have systems of justice going back to Hammurabi's code thousands and thousands of years ago where humans clearly believed, these were not humans who believed in the same God as us per se, but, but they had in their DNA this notion of justice as a necessity for human civilization, for human existence. When someone violates a law, whether it's a um, civil law, a criminal law, whatever the law they've broken, there must be restitution. And the, the punishment, in a sense, must fit the crime in order for justice to be done and for the world to be put to right again and for us all to be able to have closure and move on. And we all know this. Take the Christian stuff out of it for a second. You know that when someone does something against the criminal code or the civil code, or in our case, let's say what, what we would call God's moral code, God's moral law, that it creates some kind of an imbalance, which the Bible calls a debt. 
The Bible always talks about sin in economic terms. And there is a certain debt racked up by a certain sin, and it must be atoned for in ways that add up to the debt you created, right? If you, for example, go out into the parking lot and some Christian, probably because we're at church, dinged your car and drove off without leaving a note, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel wronged. You're going to feel like you're owed something because that's how sin works. It's a crime to hit a car and drive away. And that crime creates a debt that someone has to absorb. And if they left, you don't know who they are. We don't have cameras in the parking lot, I don't think. How are you going to find out? They're, they're gone, scot-free. And this is wrong because they're the ones who should pay for this because they're the ones that created the problem. But now you have to pay for it or your insurance company has to pay for it. And then you have to pay your insurance company. And it's wrong. And you'll feel like it's wrong for the rest of your life. That's how it works. And that's how sin always um, has worked, uh, whether it's a, a debt to the victim or it's interesting how we talk about a debt to society, right? When a criminal cre- uh, 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 performs a, what do you call it? Commits a crime. They, they owe a debt to society. That's weird that we would call it that, but that's exactly what it is. And we want the sentence to fit the crime. Right? Y'all with me? We want the sentence to fit the crime, and only then can the world be put to right and can we move on from this. So we all think about this in the same way. We use words like debt to society. We use words like pound of flesh. Everybody wants their pound of flesh. And it's interesting how when Christians talk about uh, sin being atoned for with blood, people get really uncomfortable. Like, why? Why does God need blood so much? What kind of God is this? And do we really want to worship a God who requires blood? Hebrews 9 says, without blood, there can be no forgiveness. Why not? Isn't that weird? People get really weirded out by this, but it's almost like it's almost like we just would rather judge stuff like this and religious stuff like this than really think deeper about how we look at sin because, because we look at it in a really not a very different way at all. Even, even secular, non-religious people look at this that way, that a debt is owed, it must be paid. But sometimes we want to get sentimental about forgiveness and say it's not really the economics of it. It's not that the punishment should fit the crime. That's old school thinking. It's really that we should be good human beings and just forgive and just be nice and be good enough of a person to forgive. And I hear this a lot, especially from really comfortable and privileged people who've never... um, really felt the weight of sheer injustice bearing down on them, who've never really had their life turned upside down yet by some injustice that just is not right and it won't be made right by the powers that be and you just have to sit with this injustice. A lot of times people that say, why can't God just be nice and forgive without the blood or those who've never really felt what it's like to be wronged and dealt with that injustice. 
And if it feels harsh to you, for example, what the Bible says about this in a similar verse from Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, where it says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of sins, uh, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And if that offends your sensibilities, because what kind of a loving God would require blood, why can't we just pay him money? Or why can't he just be nice and forgive? He's God. He spoke everything into being. Why can't he just speak forgiveness into being? And if this all sounds just a little too rudimentary or archaic to you, I would invite you to consider a time, maybe a real time in the past. Maybe you have to imagine this because you've never had a season like this. But imagine being wronged. Imagine or remember a time when someone you loved, when someone you loved was wronged and injured in some real way by the selfish or thoughtless acts of another and try to remember how you felt in that time and ask yourself, would, would it be enough for a judge to come along and say, just be nice and forgive them? Just be a good person and say you're forgiven to whoever caused this injury or this harm. We all like to think we would be nice enough to forgive until we're the ones who've been injured or someone we love is owed a debt. I was, uh, I was reading, just poking around online this week, and I came across this awful story of this, of this young man in his 20s whose younger, three younger siblings were taken out in a car accident when a drunk driver hit their car head on, and his mother was also injured, and three of his siblings died. And he took to Twitter to talk about how, uh, kind of to eulogize them and honor them and talk about what made each one of his three siblings special. And then and then for just a moment, he, uh, he stopped being, um, you know, so, so sweet and, and sentimental about his, about his uh, younger siblings. And he took a moment, he, he just spent a couple of tweets to speak directly to the drunk driver, who, by the way, was also killed in the accident. But, but still, something's owed here. And so he, he, in a very understandable fit of rage, he wants to collect on this debt. And this is what this young man said about this, this drunk driver whose name was John, he said, John, the man who tore apart a family forever, I do not want to hold hate in my heart, but I can never forgive you. You took away the most important pieces of my life by selfishly choosing to drive drunk. You rotting away in hell isn't enough. And you can say, well, he's just angry. He's just upset. This pain is still fresh. But listen, if you've ever felt anything remotely like what this man does, you understand. I hope, I hope you can muster some empathy for this guy. Because as I read his tweet, I thought, I get it. I understand. On a theological level, I, I, I want to say this isn't the way. But on a human level, as a man, I get where he's coming from here. Yeah, it'll never be enough. You, rotting in hell, because you took three of my siblings. You took their lives. How can that be compensated for? So in this way, we see that how sin or, or crime of various kinds creates a real debt that must be accounted for. And we believe in our hearts, secular religious people alike, that the punishment should fit the crime. 
and the debt must be paid somehow. Now, Christians take that same concept, and in the Bible, we talk about sin being a crime uh, as a, a violation against God's moral law. And the question becomes over time, um, how much of a debt do we rack up over a lifetime? Not, not against a criminal code or a human code, but like against God's holiness compared to God's perfect love. How does my life stack up? And it's been 43 years now and some change. And I have racked up a lot of sin. I've really been on a tear in my life with things that I've said, thoughts that I've thought, things that I've done that do not measure up to God's perfect will and way for my life. And I know that. And the question becomes, what do I do to atone for that? Is, is, there, is there enough money in the world to atone for the debt that I've, the cosmic debt that I've created with my sin? Can I atone for it with my time, time served, community service? Is that, can I give enough of my time to God to where it's okay? How can I ever, this is a really important, how can I ever know how much time would be enough to serve or how much money would be enough to cover my debt? You see, every other religion and worldview has had this system of uncertainty, intentional anxiety-inducing uncertainty that kept religious worshipers coming back again and again to give their offerings just to make sure their most recent sins are covered and that God's not mad at them, so if I die this week, I'll be okay. My soul will be okay because I'll know that I'm covered, but only if... I die like literally the minute after I've given my <laughs> offering because on the way home, I'll sin again. And there's this vicious cycle that takes place. And then Jesus comes along. And at Christmas, everything began to change. Everything. Because if it's true... If what Christianity posits is true, Jesus came as God in the flesh, not just to do miracles. That's a sideshow. Jesus came not just to teach his parables. Those are great. That's not it. Jesus said, I came to serve and not to be served and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' blood poured out on the cross was meant to be a symbol, but more than just a symbol, a powerful symbol of our ransom. Because when you stop to consider how much sin can be covered by blood, not just any blood, not my blood, but the blood of God himself, what's that worth? Well, that must be worth, that must be worth everything. That, that must reach beyond the breadth of all my sins. That's why Paul can write with confidence in Colossians that God forgave our sins. How else can we be sure that God has forgiven, past tense, the sins I haven't even committed yet? Unless the source of our restitution and ransom is of infinite worth. 
the innocent and pure blood of Christ. That's really what sets Christianity apart from other religions when it comes to forgiveness. And it has practical implications. Because if you're, what it means is if you're carrying around unforgiveness right now, first of all, you're not alone. Don't feel shame. If you're carrying around a burden of resentment, it's probably because you have yet to realize how forgiven you are and how wide God's grace is for you. Because when you receive the gift of his full forgiveness, when you receive that freedom, that changes you. Because you realize it's never been up to you and your ability to be nice enough to forgive. Forgiveness is the work of God, and it has been done on the cross. Another story that I came across recently is of a a police officer, Sergeant Richard Houston from uh, Mesquite, Texas, who uh, was 46 years old, had served on that force for 21 years when he responded to a disturbance at Albertson's grocery store. And uh, just another day being a cop, you know, and uh, wasn't anything spectacular. But when he got there, things had escalated between this man and his wife. The wife was accusing him of cheating on her, and he tried to pull the man aside and just kind of de-escalate the situation. And as he did, the man just kind of lost it. And he shot Officer Sergeant Houston. And then he shot himself. Somehow the man survived the self-inflicted wound, but Sergeant Houston did not. By all accounts, Sergeant Houston was a, was a great man of God, just, a, just a, a bright light, always talking about the love of God and, and just carrying himself with that gentleness and godliness. And at his funeral earlier this month, his 14 or so, I think she's about 14-year-old daughter, Shelby, spoke at her own father's funeral days after he was taken from her. And this girl, who's the same age as my daughter, who's the same age, I would imagine, as Mary was when she received the calling and said yes to God to bear the, the Son of God and bring the light of the world into being. And in her youth, she speaks about the uniqueness of Christian forgiveness in ways that escape most of us, even those of us who've been Christians for a while. So I want you to hear the words of young Shelby now at her father's funeral. I know many of you knew my father as an officer. You may have seen him in his uniform with a badge and a squad car, but I saw my dad in a different fashion, always in his plaid pajama pants, book in hand, in his silver Ford F-150. Home has felt lonely without him here. I keep waiting for him to pull up in the driveway to come inside and tell us about some crazy car chase he got into or maybe even how terrible the 7-Eleven taquitos were for lunch. (laughs) You never knew it was always a surprise what he had gotten into that day. However, there was no heavier surprise than to receive a call that your dad had been shot and killed. It will be a day I never forget. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time 
with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him. Not to yell at him. Not to scold him. Simply to tell him about Jesus. If you can't imagine feeling that way in her situation, you're not alone. and doesn't make you a bad Christian. What it means is perhaps we've yet to fully realize, as this young woman, this prophetess, has apparently realized the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of God made known in Christ on the cross. You realize that the capacity to forgive isn't up to you and your feelings. And if you feel like I'll never be able to do what she's done, I don't feel I can forgive the people who've wronged me and mine. What you need to know is Christ came to free you from the feeling it's up to you. He came to show you that the work of forgiveness is his and his alone. And it starts with you and how he dealt with your sin and how he can free you to free others from their burden that they owe you. What a difference would this make? What a difference this makes in our lives if we could just absorb this and internalize this, that every sin, past, present, and future, Christ absorbed on the cross. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's one of the things that makes Christianity unique. Shall pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reminder today of a core gospel truth. And we thank you for the words of Shelby, who testified at her own father's funeral to this truth. God, that um, forgiveness is like love. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. And you've already extended the, the grace, every bit of grace needed to cover all of our sins, all the things we've done wrong or things we've done to offend you or that contradicted your moral, your, your moral law, Lord, and your holiness. You've already forgiven us. And so, Lord, help us to set our burdens down, to hand our grief and shame over to you. You've already picked it up for us, Lord. We just continue to try and carry it ourselves. And it wears us out, it exhausts us, it makes us incapable of seeing how we can forgive others. In the same way, Lord, set us free from the ways we've been and the ways we've thought of forgiveness in the past. Set us free from resentment and shame. Set our families free 
to embrace the fullness of the Christmas promise that you came, Jesus, not just to live and not just to teach. You came to die, to send a message to the whole world that there's no amount of human sin that could ever incur a debt greater than what your blood is worth. And we thank you for being our ransom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.